I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. As I was eating breakfast, my next-door neighbor at the table, Celeste, asked if I would tell a Maharaji story. And I think it's a, a great segue into what we're going to be talking about. Uh, I have a PhD in mathematics and went right from Stanford to India. As you can imagine, my mind was extremely busy when I got there. And I found myself sitting in front of Maharaji, just recently have gotten there. I was sitting with uh, another Westerner named Mohan. Some of you may know Mohan. If you have, he is unforgettable. <laughs> and a bunch of Indian devotees. So it was Mohan and me and a bunch of Indians and Maharaji. And Maharaji uh, turned to us, to Mohan and me, and said, how much do you pay for milk in America? And Mohan did a quick calculation in his head and said, Maharaji, we pay X amount of rupees per kilo of milk which is the way, of course, you pay for milk in India. And Maharaji turned to the Indians and said, 
in Hindi, he was talking in Hindi, he said, can you believe how much they pay for milk in America? And he went on and on and on. He was talking for about 10 minutes. And I'm sitting there beginning to think, maybe this guy isn't who Ramdas told me he is. I mean, I've come all the way to India to talk about the price of milk. And he turned back to us again and said, how much was it again? And Mohan told him again. And once again, for about 10 minutes, he went on talking and talking about the price of milk. And I was getting a little frustrated. I mean, here I wanted to get enlightened, right? That was why I was there. And all of a sudden, there was an explosion in my mind, an epiphany. I don't know how I can convince you of this, but I knew it was a direct message from Maharaji. And what he was saying was, we can talk about interesting things, but that just busies up the mind. If we're talking about trivia, it allows us to plunge into the ocean of love. And I went into this bliss state that I was in for the rest of the day. I could barely talk. So I am going to say some really interesting things for the next 45 minutes or hour or so. And yet I would encourage you to remember what Ramdas was saying at the end of that second tape about there's the mind and there's the heart. And yes, the mind will like to accumulate some of what's being said, which is completely fine. But if we can do that accumulating in the context of remembering what is most important, us being together, us sharing this room, uh, exploring compassion together, then the words become, I think, contextualized in a very important way. We can look around the room, as Ramdas was pointing out. We can look around the room and see older, younger, bigger, smaller, male, female, more hair, less hair, all those things. We, we can look inside of our experience. Sometimes there's thinking, sometimes there's sensing in the body. Breath is going in and out, hearing a sound. Is there a way to be with our experience and be with that which is not changing from moment to moment? With a mala, all the beads are slightly different, but there is a cord. There is a cord that goes through all of the beads, one cord. Can we look outside? Can we look around the room? and see how there are all these differences, but at the same time, can we see that which is the same in each one of us? So that Ramdas was pointing out that compassion is not just about compassion for the other person, but very often, in fact, compassion needs to be for ourselves. On His Holiness the Dalai Lama's third visit to America, he said, now I'm beginning to understand, and it makes me very sad, you Americans don't like yourselves, which is a very sad thing. I remember once I was at a Tibetan 
empowerment. And the Lama said, okay, we're all going to open our hearts, so everybody please think about your mother. And then he said, oh, wait a minute, this is America. That doesn't mean your heart is going to open. Another very sad thing. How does suffering arise? I run the Living Dying Project. Right now, two old, old friends of mine are dying of metastatic cancer. And I don't necessarily say this to them, but I always try to remember that cancer doesn't cause suffering. Divorce doesn't cause suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. Resistance to divorce causes suffering. And, of course, for almost all of us, there will be resistance to cancer. There will be resistance to divorce. There will be resistance to loss. But if, in fact, we are blaming what is happening for our suffering, rather than taking responsibility for what we are feeling, it will make it very difficult, if not impossible, to have compassion for how that suffering is actually arising. Suffering arises, there are three possibilities. The first possibility is pushing it away. I don't want to feel that. An example that is close to my own heart is about three and a half years ago, my brother, David, younger brother, was diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer. He lived in Alameda, California, near Oakland. He was a patient of Kaiser Permanente. And he received the news that he was dying of cancer in an after-hours email from his oncologist. He called me up at 7 o'clock and said, it says I'm being put on palliative care, the cancer's in my blood. Does this mean I'm dying? So when we hear that story, it's probably not too hard to have compassion for my brother can we have compassion for the oncologist who was somebody who probably had no training in compassion. He had training in radiation. He had training in chemotherapy. He had training in oncology, but probably very little conversation or support in learning to be present for telling a relatively young guy who, who had children, that he was dying. The second possibility is when suffering arises, instead of pushing it away, we get lost in it. Your suffering is my suffering. Oh my God, what a catastrophe. Ramdas was telling that story about the woman he met on the sidewalk when it was raining. He wanted to sit down on the sidewalk with her and how he felt that he could have done more, that he, he wasn't quite clear what he was implying. But I think it's easy to, when we meet somebody, particularly being late for an appointment, to get busy either pushing it away or getting lost in suffering. I work a lot with dying people. Almost every day I'm emailing or talking to people who are dying. 
And in the movie last night that we saw, what's the name of the movie? Becoming Nobody or something? Toward the end of the movie, Ramnas was talking a lot about dying. And what a blessing it is to do that. And it is a blessing because it very often takes us beyond that pushing away or getting lost in. I can look at you, I can talk to you after this chunk of the workshop, we'll sit down and say, hi, I'm from Marin, where are you from? And it, it can be easy to do that in a half-hearted or three-quarters-hearted way. But when you're with somebody who might be approaching death, when you're with somebody who you don't know how much longer they're going to be breathing, it is painful, it hurts the heart to push away or to get lost in their suffering, that it often calls out the best in each of us. So I train people to work with other people who are dying. And one of the main things I say is that caregiving is work on yourself. I don't train people to help other people. I train people to be awake and compassionate for themselves as they're with other people. Because if you're busy helping another person, you are very often going to get caught in places where there's the pushing away or there's getting caught in. Whereas if you're really being very alert and having compassion for your own process, you will catch those places. You will have compassion for those places. And in a very natural way, you will be the best possible helper. Can we trust that we don't have to be busy being a helper? Can we trust that we can go beyond seeing the other person as a cancer patient or a dying person? Last night, I used the two magic words, Donald Trump. So imagine right now that uh, instead of this being a bell with Hanuman on top of it, Donald Trump is seated on the table next to me. How many of you could see a human being? Instead of seeing what he represented to you, the projections that you put upon that, that person, a more difficult person not to project on is someone who is obviously and actively dying. So suppose right here is someone who is incredibly thin, their skin is gray, their breath is very ragged, and it's really pretty clear that they're not going to be breathing too very much longer. Is it possible to see a human being rather than a cancer patient or a dying person? I remember once I was at a workshop with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross a long, long time ago. And a young woman told her story. She was a nurse. She had three young children, and she was dying of metastatic breast cancer. So Elizabeth called her up. She told her story in a, such an evocative way. Elizabeth uh, asked the audience, how does her story make you feel? And Elizabeth had a blackboard. Back in those days, we had blackboards instead of whiteboards. And people called out 
adjectives of how the story made her feel angry, sad, frightened, frustrated. And one by one, Elizabeth wrote these adjectives on the blackboard. And at the end of all of this, Elizabeth asked the nurse, how do these reactions make you feel? And the woman said, I feel very lonely. Because people were caught in their reactivity rather than being with her as a human being. Traditionally, compassion in Asia is taught for the other person. This story the Dalai Lama told of, it makes me sad to see that you Americans don't like yourselves. Can you imagine what it is like to begin spiritual practice not liking yourself? I think we can all imagine that because pretty much that's where we started. And that's probably why we started. So we're practicing to start liking ourselves. And yet the nature of the heart is spaciousness. Truly in the heart, there is no one there. Someone is there in the mind, but not in the heart. So that going in the heart means at least temporarily dying to who we think we are. And if we think we're this ego structure, if we think we're this body, then going into the heart is going to be challenging. Going into the heart in a way very directly confronts our fear of death. So very often in the West, instead of directly plunging into these heart practices, and compassion is a heart practice, and we're here for the weekend exploring the heart, exploring the heart of compassion, and then bringing it into our lives. If we haven't made friends with ourselves, if we haven't inhabited the lower chakras, we're grounded, we're centered, we're doing the martial art of me, of you, then this thing of dissolving into the heart and becoming compassion is going to be something that happens only sporadically because it's threatening who we think we are. Stephen Levine, my dear friend who died a few years ago, wrote a book called Who Dies? Very good question. The body dies, the personality dies. Is there a quality of consciousness or aliveness that does not die? Let's do a really quick experiment. I'm going to ask you a question. I'd like you to answer it quietly to yourself. And the question is, are you aware? You answer that. And probably the answer was yes. And what I'm suggesting is, can we rest in that place between the end of the question and your answer? Can we rest in that place of being aware of aware? That place of being aware of consciousness? That's the place that doesn't die. But usually we are so fixated on the objects of consciousness that we're not really with the awareness itself. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a slogan in the Lojong teachings that says, drive all blames into yourself. It's kind of a really clunky translation. It, it, it doesn't mean blame yourself. But what it means is as soon as we are blaming the external environment for how we are feeling, 
there's too much traffic. It's too cold today. I don't like what the politicians are doing to the planet. My body hurts. My mind is agitated. As soon as we're blaming how we're feeling for something outside, in that moment, healing becomes impossible. So we reclaim the blame, not in the sense of blaming ourselves, but being responsible for what we're feeling. Each moment, each moment is open to awareness and compassion. And yet we are so conditioned when suffering arises to try to get away from it. And the great paradox, in fact, maybe even the secret to spiritual practice, is that healing happens by moving into suffering. Our suffering is the perfect pointing at what the heart needs to open to next. Suffering is grace. I remember when the first time I heard Ramdas say that. I, I can't remember if I wanted to throw up or punch him. It was one of those two. But clearly, it wasn't a message I really wanted to hear at that point. Suffering is grace. But after some frustrating decades of practice, I have to admit that when I'm suffering, I like that because it shows me here is a place that my heart isn't completely open. Here is an opportunity to deepen my ability to love, to deepen my ability to have compassion. Let me just pause for a moment and ask if there are any questions about what's been said so far. <laughs> okay. How do we make all the suffering all right? How do we not run away from it all? So let's do a, a very brief guided practice. I'd like each of you to imagine, to remember something in your life that's caused you to suffer. Something's happened in the last few days or few weeks, something that's been difficult. And there's a story associated with that. Can you let go of that story and feel as nakedly and directly as possible what's going on in your body? Let go of the story. What is the immediate naked experience of being with that suffering? And then secondly, can you open your heart to a body that is feeling that? What does that feel like? Usually when suffering arises, we fixate on the trigger. We fixate on, I am suffering because of what's going on out there. And we get, we get caught in the story. So that the way through is letting go of the story, coming into the heart. First awareness, then going into the heart. For those of you who have studied Buddhism, there are the yanas of Buddhism, Hinayana, which is Theravada, which is Vipassana practice, Mahayana Buddhism, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. The first stage of Buddhism is that all we have to do is pay attention to suffering. And in fact, 
Buddha has the four noble truths. The first truth is that life is suffering, which is really a rather poor translation of the word dukkha, that life is unsatisfactory. As long as we're caught in the realm of duality, we'll be getting too much or we'll not getting enough or we'll be getting it too soon or we'll be getting it too late. There will be unsatisfactoriness. But the second noble truth is that unsatisfactoriness is caused by attachment. And the third is if you give up attachment, there won't be any more suffering. Okay, so the way through is to give up attachment. Good luck. Okay, that's not, uh, it's a very simple but incredibly difficult prescription. Can we be directly with the places that are difficult without pushing them away? Usually in Buddhism, before somebody begins to practice, there are contemplations to increase motivation. During the guided meditation, I asked you to examine your motivation. What is it that has brought you to this retreat? There are some traditional contemplations. The first one is, you're going to die, but you don't know when. Now, could there be anything more intellectually obvious than the fact you're going to die, but you don't know when? But suppose we really took that truth into the marrow of our bones. The film critic Roger Ebert, who died of a rather difficult facial neck cancer, was typing out the answer to an interview question about how cancer had affected his life. And he typed out, as I'm typing this sentence, I don't know if I'm going to be alive to type the period at the end of a sentence. So do you know that you're going to be alive at the end of this talk? Are you going to have lunch today? If we didn't know we were getting out of this room alive, how would it affect the way we were loving each other right now? How would it affect the way we were willing to be in our bodies, to be in bodies that are finite, that have pain, that are aging, to be in minds that get bored and get agitated? My first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi, said the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing? So if we really knew we were going to die, some people take that as a kind of a morbid statement. Uh, I go to parties very occasionally, but I'll go to a party and somebody says, what do you do? And I know that the party's about to change. <laughs> half of the people are going to gather around, the other half are going to run out of the room. <laughs> okay. The second contemplation to develop motivation so that we can be with suffering, so that we can go beyond suffering into compassion, is that this life is precious. This is the only moment in which we can awaken. You can't awaken tomorrow. You can't awaken later on. It can only happen right now. Can we so deeply plunge into that consciousness, that place between are you aware and yes? Can we rest in that place? It's difficult to rest in that place because the ego structure 
doesn't exist. The ego is a verb. You hear, you think, you smell, you ego. Neuroscientists have found that there is no one place in the brain that is I. When they ask people to think about I, all these different places light up in the brain. And when people think about not I, all these other places interspersed with the I places light up. There is no, there is no I, there's no ego in the brain. It is a structure that we've created, a process that we've created in order to navigate our lives. How lightly can we hold it? How much can we know that that is the cause of our suffering, that identification? You're going to die, but you don't know when. Life is precious. How many people on this planet have the luxury of coming to Ojai for three or four days, sitting in a room and talking about compassion and God and Maharaji and love, and they're not preoccupied with their children not starving to death or dealing with the dictatorship or the fact they're almost dying or the fact that uh, they have to work 18 hours a day to support their family. We have a great gift to be able to come and do what we're doing here together. The Buddha said that only one out of a thousand people truly enters on the path. And out of a thousand people who enters the path, only one gets to the end. So if you can do your multiplications, that's one out of a million. I don't know if the odds have changed since the day of the Buddha. You think it's gone up or down? How many people say up? I think it's gone down, but whatever. In fact, here's, here's a, a really fascinating Buddha story. The Buddha said that in the 500 years after I die, many, many people will reach liberation by following the Dharma, by following my teachings. And in the 500 years after that, many people but fewer will reach liberation. In the 500 years after that, fewer still. So that after 10 of those periods, after 5,000 years, the concepts of Buddha and Dharma, liberation and the path to liberation, will be lost from this earth and the Maitreya Buddha will show up. But that there will be a hundred year period that started in the 1950s in which the Dharma would be readily available and that it was this very auspicious time to practice. You could remember in 1950s, for those of you who are alive, probably not too many of you, but you could read the books, that in those days, there were not that many people practicing. People in Kyoto, people in the Amazon jungle, people in Jerusalem. And it's not too hard to imagine in 2050 that the Chinese dictatorship will not give you time to practice or that the hole in the ozone layer will be such that you can barely uh, find water to drink, or who knows what it will be, or that the robots will keep you so busy that there won't be time really to meditate. But that right now, you can go to the local bookstore and buy the wisdom of the ages in paperback form, and that all these teachings are, these precious teachings are readily available. You're gonna die, but you don't know when. Life is precious. There is karma. What we do think or say has an effect. Every thought has an effect. Imagine how simple your life would be 
if you were motivated by compassion. Each time you acted, it was, what is the compassionate thing to do? For me, for the people around me, for the planet. Not, are they going to like me? Am I going to get enough? What does this really mean? What is the compassionate thing to do? And the last truth is that there is suffering, that when we act with attachment, there's going to be suffering. Can we take these four motivating truths, gather them together as if they were a precious bouquet, and use that as a motivation for developing a compassionate heart? There are defining qualities of the compassionate heart. The three of them are, it's a warm heart, it's a connected heart, and it's a spacious heart. So, Ramnus didn't really use those terms, but he really implied those things in a lot of what he was saying. When he was sitting with that woman, or talking to that woman on the sidewalk, could he be connected? Right now, are we connected? Are you connected with your own self in a compassionate way? Are you connected with what's going on in the room? If we connect through compassion, the room feels incredibly different. If we're just here collecting information, not so much. Okay, a connected heart, a warm heart. When your heart starts getting cool, when you're not plunging into that warmth, no compassion. Somebody asked Maharaji, Maharaji, how should we meditate? And Maharaji said to everybody, shock, meditate the way Christ meditated. Which, like, first of all, how would he know? Right? I mean, <laughs> which, yeah, obviously. <laughs> and then we said, Maharaji, how did he meditate? And tears started coming down Maharaji's cheeks. And he said he lost himself in love. He gave his body for the Dharma. He loved all mankind. He lost himself in love. And the third quality of the compassionate heart is a spacious heart. Ramdas, in one of those talks, I think he was talking about a window frame. And imagine that we look out this window here, and it's not a cloudy day, but it's a sunny day. There's blue sky out the window. And into that chunk of blue sky that is your mind, and there's a window frame about your mind because you assume that you're not infinitely spacious. Into that chunk of sky that you think of as your mind comes a gray cloud, a cloud of anger, a cloud of happiness. It doesn't have to be a bad cloud. And if the cloud is big enough and the window frame is small enough, what do you see? You see gray, you see cloud, and you say, I am angry, I am afraid. But if the window frame is bigger, because we're here practicing compassion, we're meditating, we're, we're exploring these things. If the window frame gets bigger, that same size cloud can come. And what do you see now? You see that same size cloud, but there's a blue context around it, and the cloud is moving. It's going to be gone. Payment Children says, you are the sky, everything else is just the weather. In English, we say, I am afraid. 
In Spanish, we say, I have fear. In Tibetan, fear is here. So just the way we language emotions in English makes it so much harder not to have a small window frame to identify with those passing clouds and thus prevent the naturally arising of the compassionate heart. In Theravada Buddhism, when they say all you have to do is pay attention, there is this profoundly positive underlying assumption that often isn't talked about, that if you pay attention, it will reveal the wholeness that you intrinsically are. We are enlightened already. That compassionate heart is who we are, even though we have a hard time admitting it because it is so threatening to the ego structure. So that these three qualities of the compassionate heart, spaciousness, warmth, and connectedness, are qualities that you can take as a practice. After the end of our talk today, you can say take one of those three, take spaciousness, and just as you're going to lunch, as you're doing what you're doing for the rest of the day, keep asking yourself, is my heart spacious? If it's not, can I breathe some sky into my heart? Or am I connected to people? The Dalai Lama also goes on to say that a quality of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. So that if I feel better than you, I'm the one with money and you're the homeless schizophrenic person on the sidewalk, and let me give you some money so that I don't have to feel your pain too much, then that's really not compassion. In Buddhism, there are far and near, far and near enemies of wholesome qualities. The far enemy of compassion is indifference. I don't really care about your suffering, that's your problem, it's not my problem. The near enemy of compassion is pity. You give somebody money to make your pain go away. And to, to an outside person, it can look like you're doing a compassionate thing, but really it's not coming from an open heart. The far enemy of loving kindness is hatred, now, here's the interesting and really provocative one. What do you think is the near enemy of loving kindness? It looks like love, it smells like love, but it's not love and it causes problems. What? What? I can't hear you. Righteousness? Not quite. Lust is part of it. The answer is attachment. And I would suggest that if you love somebody, Kelly's engaged to be married. She must love somebody, hopefully. That there's, there's, there's probably some mixture of love and attachment. Love expects nothing in return. Joseph Goldstein tells this wonderful story. He was teaching a Vipassana retreat. They were taking a break. He was walking down a country road. There was a very angry dog in an unfenced yard that was barking at him like, I'm going to bite you. And Joseph thought, I will, I will send some loving kindness to this dog so the dog doesn't bite me. And he, 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 he projected this, and the, the dog ran over and bit him. 
And he realized that what, he was not projecting loving kindness. He was projecting, please don't bite me. Attachment. And that usually, though, there's a mixture of love and attachment. And it's very instructive to learn to disentangle how much of it of your connection with yourself or somebody else is love and how much of it is attachment. Compassion is a heart quality. It's the fourth chakra. And for many of us, particularly in the West, and going back to the Dalai Lama's quote about uh, often Westerners don't like themselves, that's because we haven't opened up the lower chakras. These Asian practices that are so popular were developed by and for people a few thousand years ago who were grounded, centered, didn't have an iPhone, loved their mommy and daddy, and that's nobody in this room, right? So very often when we're encountering someone else's suffering and we're not completely grounded and centered, uh, the situation is threatening to the ego structure. If we create this foundation from which martial arts are done, the martial art of being you, the martial art of being me, oh, hara, dantian, down in the lower belly, then there is this autonomous, independent person manifesting the shakti, the chi of the universe through them. And then we don't need the environment to be supportive in order for the heart to be open. So everybody in this room knows people and everybody in this room is a person for whom at times your heart is really open and at other times somebody looks at you in a funny way or says the wrong thing and the heart really closes. I, I was talking to a friend of mine just two days ago. I was, yeah, two days ago, I was giving a talk at the San Francisco End of Life Network and uh, a dear friend of mine has fallen in love. And she's an older woman. She hasn't been in love for a really, really a long time. And she said, it is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I, I didn't know how angry I really was. <laughs> and uh, so when the relationship is not supportive, I'm in, being supportive of I'm in love with you and aren't we great? And this, isn't this a fantastic thing? Then if we're not grounded and centered, it's too scary, the heart closes. So that tomorrow we're gonna to be talking about what can we do to create a foundation so the heart can stay open, whether the environment is supportive or not. When we were in India, there was a war going on. Uh, India was fighting with Pakistan. I remember one night a bunch of us were sleeping on the roof of the hotel we stayed at in the Palace Heights Hotel in Delhi, and planes were going overhead. We didn't know if they were Pakistani planes about to drop bombs on us or they were Indian planes trying to protect us. Turns out that it was Indian planes, fortunately. But at that point, later we went to be with Maharaji in Nanital, and we were just a few hundred miles from this war. And many thousands of Pakistani, eventually Bangladeshi people, were starving. And Maharaji knew those people were starving, and yet he didn't do anything about it. He allowed starvation to go on, and yet it was clear from the miracles that he had done that he could just do that and food would appear, the loaves and fishes trick he had done 
any number of times if you read some of like in Miracle of Love. So that is it possible to stay open and realize that suffering will continue? That sometimes it's right to do something about it, sometimes it's not. There's a story about the great poet Kabir. He had a son who had some powers himself. And Kabir's son pulled the dead body out of the Ganges River in Benares and brought this, this dead corpse back to life. But apparently this person was supposed to be dead. And Kabir said, now the house of Kabir is ruined because he was just using his powers. He was not doing it in an appropriate way. There's, there are stories about Maharaji of devotees were dying and he would heal them. But then there was another story where a uh, servant of a devotee came to Maharaji and said, Maharaji, my, my uh, so-and-so, your devotee is dying. Can you heal him? And Maharaji said, it's time for him to die. There's nothing I can do. And the servant pleaded and pleaded. And Maharaji said, okay, take this banana, mash it up, give it to him, and he will be okay. So the servant took the banana very carefully. They brought it back. They mashed it up. They gave it to the guy. He ate it, and he, and he died. Can we allow suffering to be in this world? Suffering is only suffering. I don't say that to my clients who are dying, but suffering is once again showing how we're caught. In the movie last night, Ramdas was talking about his relationship with Ginny Pfeiffer, who was dying, and yet she was in ecstasy, and yet she was in a lot of pain. Her body was writhing in physical pain. In fact, one of the ways to really cultivate compassion is can you work with physical pain in your body? And that's also something we can talk about in another time. But uh, I can go to the dentist and have her drill on my root. I had to do this. I, I got decay under a crown. So they took the crown off, and they were going to drill on a live nerve. And the dentist said, I'm going to give you a shot. I said, I don't want the shot. So she called her husband in, who was a bigger dentist. <laughs> he says, you should have the shot. I would have the shot. I said, I don't want the shot. And they drilled on my nerve. And it was unpleasant sensations for 30 seconds. I relaxed. And I'm not saying you should do this, but it's a way to train to not react all the time to the unpleasant. When you're meditating, sometimes you give yourself permission to move and your legs are getting tight. But sometimes could you sit and not move for a certain amount of time? Set a timer. A bunch of us meditated this guy, Goenka, in India, and he would have you sit for an hour, called it the vow hour, where you vowed not to move for one hour. And after 40 minutes, my vow, my meditation was not to scream because it was that painful. It was only pain. And pain is not suffering. Pain is mandatory. Suffering is optional. We all have pain. Pain is part of being in a body. Pain is part of being human. Suffering is our, our uh, attachment to not feeling pain. So that the mind, the emotional body, much more complicated and manipulative and, 
uh, difficult to work with. But the body is a very immediate way of beginning to work with the pushing away of suffering. Mm -hmm.